Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. So, um, you want to talk politics? I will say what Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are his and render to God. He was talking about, they were talking about tribute, taxes, and they brought a coin. And he wasn't talking about money as he was the image on the coin. It's just a little food for thought. Uh, we, uh, as a people, I'm, we'll, you will not see me on social media making comments and getting in the, the ping pong match of, of comments. You will just hear me say that we are against violence in any form except the kind that the kingdom, in the kingdom, the, the kingdom of Uh, of God suffers violence and the violent take it by force. That's the only kind of spiritual metaphor violence we're talking about. And the way violence works in the kingdom is just, you know, uh, like when I was playing the melody on the piano earlier, that's my weapon. And so when I play simple, beautiful miracles, hell shrieks. It's torment to the darkness. So you have to understand it's an upside-down kingdom. What violence looks like to the natural realm looks completely different in the spirit realm. So I will also say, you will not hear me say one negative word against our president. We are instructed to pray for our leaders. When the next president comes into office, we will pray for him. We will speak no negative thing. We'll keep our mouths shut the way David kept his mouth shut when they tried to destroy Saul. Politics, it's over. That's done. That's not the sermon today. But I felt like this has been such a crazy week. Uh, I can't just pretend nothing's going on. Man, that light is really bright right there. Uh, But I want to see you. I want to see you. I think we have a comedian over here with that hat on her head. Uh, they say you're a comedian. They say, Could I, if I just walked over there, you'd have something funny to say? Ah! <laughs> we'll see how this goes, all right? Uh, uh, I, am, I am so um, excited and nervous. Not nervous like scared nervous, but th- with um, when COVID started and the shutdown began, I remember waking up one morning and just this, I I don't remember exactly what I dreamed, but I woke up and I woke Nicole up and I said, God has given me the theme of our next project. It's called uh, the revelation of Jesus. Every song is going to come out of the book of Revelation. And it's weighty. As soon as I said it, something leapt inside of her 
and me. Then I began to share it with songwriters that I'm working with, and it was this instant jump. It was the leap in the womb of the writer, <laughs> of, the, of, the, of the ones that I would share with, or with pastors, or, or uh, with Bishop Garlington, I called, and he was like, instantly this thing, and he says, you got to get this book uh, written by Eugene Peterson. Uh, he's, Eugene Peterson is the man who wrote the message translation that we use a lot. And uh, so he's written a book called Reversed Thunder. And so today I'm going to take some, uh, some information from that book because it's so gripping and so, uh, it, it's, it's, it's so interesting when I heard the Lord say this out of waking up out of a dream, um, it's like you become a magnet to things you need to accomplish what God told you. And it's like everywhere I would turn, suddenly the conversation is revelation. Everywhere I would go, I would see somebody, whether it's posting a scripture or there's just this conversation about revelation. Now, revelation used to be the book that I would speed read through. Uh, I, I don't hear a lot of talk from the book of Revelation because it's scary. There's, there's so much that we know and there's so much that we don't know. And so sometimes we hurry past it so that we get it under our belt to say we read the Bible, that part of the Bible, because we know we're blessed. If you say it out loud, I'm going to read that passage of scripture. And you're blessed if you hear the words of this prophecy. But yet most of the church resists even looking at the book of Revelation, because it messes with their eschatology. You know what that word is? It's a big word. It's not, it's really not a pretty word, is it? Eschatology. E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. Eschatology. Someone said, yep. Um, it's the study of end times, and so there are so many different concepts, ideals, that for hundreds and hundreds and, well, 2,000 years, people have argued about the end times about the interpretation. And when you get to the book of Revelation, it says there towards the end, don't change one thing. Don't take one word away. Don't add one word to, or you'll be cursed. So we stay away from the book of Revelation. So we're starting, and I don't know how long this is going to go. Uh, I'm not calling it a series, although it might, it's probably a series, but uh, it, it's, does it say series? Okay, I guess we, we have committed. <laughs> a series on the book of Revelation, famous last words. Babe, will you turn that off? I hear Siri talking to you, right? <laughs> um, the revelation of Jesus. The very opening, the opening line of the book of Revelation, uh, that is the first sentence, the revelation of Jesus. I'm going to read a passage of scripture that's not even in Revelation, uh, but I just, there, I, there's a parallel of language that I want you to see. Psalm 29, verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. 
the God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. Revelation, the eighth chapter, starting with verse four and on to verse five. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints. Nicole used this passage of scripture several weeks ago. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So, so as I've been studying this and writing, I've got, uh, uh, I think, 11 songs completed in the last month and uh, about three in the works. And I don't know how long this is going to be or how many songs. This is gonna, there's a lot in the book of Revelation to write about. Uh, uh, we, we, we determined we're not going to write about the mark of the beast. And we're not going to write about the locusts and the tails that sting. And uh, uh, you know, I, I told Gracie, I heard people say before, you know, what John was seeing, he really had no idea. Uh, I've heard people say perhaps the locust that he saw with the iron chest could have been a helicopter. I mean, I don't know. Or it could have been a giant, ugly locust. <laughs> um, Okay, let me see. I uh, had something I was going to go in there, and I got the locust. Got distracted by the locust. Eugene Peterson said, a few paragraphs into the revelation, and the adrenaline starts rushing through the arteries of my faith. And I am on my feet, alive. It's impossible to read the revelation and not have my imagination aroused. The revelation both forces me and enables me to look what is spread out before me and see it with fresh eyes. It forces me because being the last book of the Bible, I cannot finish the story apart from it. It enables me because by using the unfamiliar language of the apocalyptic vision, my imagination is called into vigorous play. Eugene could write it, couldn't he? <laughs> Eugene, if you were still living, I'd find you and give you a high five on that one or drop a mic or something. The revelation is a gift, a work of intense imagination that pulls its reader into the world of sky battles between angels and beasts, lurid punishments and glorious salvations, kaleidoscopic vision and cosmic song. Yes, the book of Revelation is song. It's full of song. Have you noticed? If you were reading through the Bible with us uh, at the through the month of December, we hit the book of Revelation. 
It's a world in which children are instinctively at home and in which adults, by becoming like little children, recapture an elemental involvement in the basic conflicts and struggles that permeate our existence and then go on to discover again the soaring adoration and primal affirmation for which God made us. When I think of the book of Revelation, I consider, when I, when I uh, read this particular note and how it makes children feel at home, you're like, really, Revelation? It's like, yeah, yeah. It's like, I mean, my kids, even in the recent weeks, Gracie's asking me these questions. She's all intrigued about the book of Revelation, and I'm trying to uh, give her my best assessment. But I think, you know, um, about the movies, the Lord of the Rings, all the craziness, the, the, the dwarfs and the elves and the, all the battles. And what are those things in the earth that come out? Orcs? Is that what they are? Cole, what are those? Orcs, thank you. I needed an answer. I thought they were orcs, these ugly-looking demonic things. And, and so I think when I, when I watch it, I would imagine... Images from the book of Revelation. You're like, that's scary. That is scary. But uh, I'm, I'm, hopefully I want you to see it with fresh eyes when we get finished. Because I, today I just want to lay a foundation. I want you to understand who the author is. I, w- I want to talk to you about the author. Now we know John. He was the teenager, 17, 18, maybe 19 years old when Jesus called him. He was the one who leaned against the bosom of Jesus at the table. He was the one in the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four gospels. John, the same John uh, wrote, St. John wrote the fourth gospel. He also wrote the three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The same author, the same writer. And, but, but like in the book of John, John writes this whole book, but he doesn't identify himself. We hear him say, when he refers to himself, the one that Jesus loved. But he never identifies himself. Speaks of humility. Everything in Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete in Jesus Christ. There's nothing new to say on the subject, but there's a new way to say it. I read the Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. I'll dig into that a little bit. How what words on paper suddenly come alive. They're not just looked at and studied, but they suddenly are vivid and you see the images. It's hard to read Revelation and not go to sleep and have dreams. (laughs) 
John uses words the way poets do. He takes truth that has been eroded by careless use and sets in motion before us an animated, impassioned dance. Revelation is not written to show us the furniture of heaven or to reveal to us the temperature of hell. It's the revelation of Jesus. Evil is present in the book of Revelation, the same as the serpent was present in the book of Genesis. But the book of Genesis is, is not about the serpent, nor is the book of Revelation. Psalm 78, verse 2, 4 says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. Again, I'm throwing out language, a common poetry threaded throughout Scripture. Revelation, the first chapter, the first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. The more one studies this book, the more convinced one feels that it was deliberately composed as the grand finale. Famous last words. The most famous last words spoken are written are the last book of the Bible, the Revelation. None other comes close. But most famous does not mean most admired or most or best understood. Many confused by the bloody dragons and the doomsday noise are only bewildered by the information. Still, there have always been some who stop and look and read out of curiosity, but stay to understand and admire because they discovered rich truth. That's what we're going to find. We're going to mine it out. We're going to dig it. These words for us are famous, not because of how bizarre. They're famous because they're so satisfyingly true. The last words of the revelation are famous because they summarize centuries of biblical insight and experience in the persons that God chose to reveal them to. John. Now, John, again, I want you, I'm going to read a little passage here. Uh, John was boiled in oil 
All the disciples had been martyred, had been murdered, and, and John was the last living disciple of the original 12. And for preaching the gospel, he was arrested, put in prison, and then they boiled him in oil to kill him, but he wouldn't die. So they took him to a prison, an island called Patmos. Uh, when, when, we read the, when we read the scripture, John doesn't describe, but the people of the day understood that Patmos was a prison like we understand Alcatraz is a prison. It's a little island out in San Francisco Bay. Ever been there? Ever, you, know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? Those of you that travel, you know, there's, everybody understands. So when, when John writes of Patmos, he doesn't give details. Again, he holds back information. He doesn't talk about the excruciating pain he's in. What condition must his skin be in as he's left to die in a cave of chaos on an island, a prison? There are three things that we start uh, that I want you to understand about John. In, there was, in the fourth century, one of the uh, writers, one of the transcribers that wrote out and rewrote in new interpretations, but in the fourth century, uh, they wrote the Revelation, and on the title page they wrote the Revelation, and they put, by John the theologian. It was understood that John was a smart man. He was a theologian. Here's the passage of scripture. Uh, these three ministries that he functioned in reveal, are revealed in this opening statement, and I'll break it down for you. In Revelations chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. He's saying a lot there without saying a lot was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I'm at this prison because of Jesus. Because of the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book. Send it to the seven churches. Then I turn to see the voice. I like that. I like that phrase. I turned to see the voice. That's Revelation 1, 9-12. Did I read all of that right? Did I skip over something? I kind of paused. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Then I turned to see the voice. See, the way he writes is already pulling me in. 
John was on Patmos, a prison island, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The word of God put him where he was. It also made him who he was. He didn't identify himself by his circumstances as a prisoner, but by his vocation as a theologian. He did not analyze politics of the day to account for his predicament, but exercised his intelligence on the word and testimony of God and of Jesus, the task of a theologian. The word and witness that shaped his life were then written down under inspiration in the spirit. He was commanded, write what you see. The result is a book that recreates in us, his readers, that which he himself experienced. It's the work of a poet. He did this in a conscious double companionship with Christians and Christ. When he said, your brother who shares with you in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, he shared everything the difficulties, the glorious blessings, the day-by-day discipleship. This is the life of a pastor. We have to understand that he was a theologian. A theologian takes God seriously as the subject, not an object, and makes it a life's work to think and talk of God in order to develop knowledge and understanding of God. The poet takes words seriously. Now catch me here. The theologian takes God seriously. A poet takes words seriously as images that connect the visible and the invisible. And become he becomes a custodian of their usage. A pastor takes actual persons seriously. A pastor takes people seriously as children of God and faithfully listens to them and speaks to them in the conviction that their life of faith in God is central to all. That's the role of a pastor. The three ministries that I'm describing don't don't always converge in one person but when they do it's impressive because John so thoroughly integrated the work of theologian, poet and pastor we have this brilliantly conceived and endlessly useful document called the Revelation. Still going to dig out this, these three things that John was. St. John is a theologian whose entire mind is saturated with thoughts 
of God. His whole being is staggered by a vision of God. The world-making, salvation-shaping word of God is heard and pondered and considered and expressed. This is the theologian. He is God-intoxicated. He is God-possessed. God-articulate. He insists that God is more than just a blur of yearning or longing. John is full of exclamation in his relation to God. Quite overwhelmed with his experience of God. But through it all, there is life. God revealed. God known. Understood intellectually. The theologian. The Christian community needs theologians to keep us thinking about God and not just making random guesses about him. At the deepest levels, we require a God whom we can worship with our whole mind, strength, The result of, God, uh, of John's theological work, the result of all of this study, the result is a poem. The book of Revelation, you have to understand, is poetry. If Revelation is not read as a poem, it's simply incomprehensible. I know this is a lot of information, I'm trying to get to you, and I'm not getting a lot of amens, and this is not an amen sermon. That's okay with me. I want you to grasp. I want to lay this foundation as we dig into uh, the 22 chapters. It's interesting. I met with John and uh, Tanner this week. Uh, we're talking, you know, just kind of going over our plans. What are we going to do? What are we going to talk about? How are we going to mine this out? And because it's all of us are going to share, we're going to come from our own perspectives and walk this out. And so we go to this little coffee shop downtown McKinney. What's it called? Snug on the Square. Anybody ever been to Snug on the Square? You should check it out. It's, I, I, I wasn't eating breakfast, but it looked like good breakfast in there. I saw biscuits with gravy. I wanted it so bad, and Nicole would have never known. <laughs> but, but I refrained. And then, then uh, I got to say, I got to say, so we're talking. And when John brought the bill upstairs, we had this little nook upstairs where we were, we were studying and talking. And he showed me the receipt, and it said it cost $22.22. And we're like, of course, Tanner is so smart. We just wanted to hit him for, for knowing this. Tanner was like, it's interesting because there are 22 promises in the book of Revelation, and there are 22 chapters. So we're like, okay, okay, that's, you know. We didn't need another confirmation, but it's always good when they come, right? A poet uses words not to explain something and not to describe something. Poet means maker. The definition of the word poet is maker. Poetry is not the language of explanation, but the language of imagination. 
it makes an image of reality in such a way as we invite as, as we invite others to participate. It creates a picture that has a way of inviting you in to participate in what's going on. We do not have more information after we read a poem. We have more experience. It's not an examination of what happens, but an immersion into what happens. Poets are extravagant and bold. St. John is a poet using words to intensify our relationship with God. That's his effort. He's not trying to get us to think more accurately, but to get us to believe more recklessly, behave more playfully, to jar us out of lethargy, to get us to live on alert, open our eyes to the burning bushes. They're there still. And the fiery chariots. Elijah. To open our ears to the promises and commands of Christ. To banish boredom from the gospel. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, it's just hard to read the Bible through with you because I get bored in Leviticus and Numbers and other areas. It's, and it, it, the poet, the poet's effort is to lift up our heads and enlarge our hearts. The poet transmits us there, not in the sense of bringing the information to the receiver, but putting the receiver in the place of the event. St. John sings his songs, represents his visions, arranges the sounds and meanings of his words rhythmically and artistically. He creates images unexpectedly, and we see and hear what was there all the time. If we had only really listened, really looked. He wakes up our minds and rouses our feelings, involves our senses. It's like we can, we relate when, when Jesus uh, says in the book of Revelation, I wish you were hot or cold or I would spew you out of my mouth because it, it, it reaches our senses. We can imagine that we've all, Kind of, if you ever, like, if you don't want to talk about being sick, you're brushing your teeth sometimes, and you brush your tongue, and you get it too far back, and all of a sudden, you're over the sink, and you're like, <laughs> We see the numbers, and it causes our mind to imagine what does 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands look like. All of our senses. This is what the poet does. He, 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 he causes it to come alive. Now let's talk about John the pastor. The way he talks. 
the way he perceives, the way he communicates, takes place among people, among persons, among a community of believers who dare to live by the great invisibles of grace who believe promises, who accept forgiveness, people who pray. This is who John is doing life with. This is who he's writing to. These people daily and dangerously live by faith. They've seen all of their leaders murdered for the cause of Christ. So they're living in this dangerous place. I'm going to believe if it kills me, and it most likely will. They're tempted to quit. And John is their pastor. As he says in that first verse, your brother. John, your brother. In this scripture, in this first little verse, it reveals pastor, the heart of the pastor, the poet, and the theologian. People who live by faith have this sense of living in the middle. We believe, as people of God, that God is at the beginning of all things, right? And we believe that God is at the conclusion of all things, the Alpha and Omega, Revelation 1 and 8. It's routine among us to assume that the beginning was good. In Genesis, he says, and God saw all that he had made and said it was good. It was very good. It is also agreed among us that the conclusion will be good. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That would seem to guarantee that everything between the good beginning and the good ending would also be good. But it doesn't work out that way. It doesn't turn out that way. The goodness becomes interrupted. I'm rejected by a parent. Coerced by a government. Divorced by a spouse. Lost loved one discriminated against because of the color of my skin all of these things that happen in the middle of a good beginning and a good ending between the believed but unremembered beginning and the hoped for but unimaginable ending. There are disappointments, contradictions, and unfulfilled expectations. The pastor is the person who specializes in accompanying these people. The pastor walks and talks and speaks and directs in the middle facing the ugly details, the meaningless routines, the mocking wickedness, and all the time insisting that this unlovely middle is connected to a splendid beginning and a glorious ending. It's kind of like reading a book. I don't know 
John doesn't like to read, right? Cole, Cole, I know Cole on the other hand will read. He, he's the audio, he, he likes to listen. Cole is like, Cole is a book nerd. It's my son Cole back here. Cole, and he's proud of it. Cole will read a book. I remember uh, for years we would get him gift cards for Barnes and Noble, and he would uh, he would go bring home ten or fifteen books, all really thick, and they're all read in a matter of days. Right? He just sits down and will not stop. And so I, I love to read. I love to, the suspenseful stories. It's like. I, you know, Cole's even written some things, some books, and and I start reading, and in the first few paragraphs, I'm taking in, I'm taken into this world that I'm unfamiliar with, and I have this sense that this, this is, uh, you think you're going to understand where this is going to go, then suddenly there's a surprise, and you're somewhere else, and you start making assessments about the the, the characters, and you think you read this is a bad guy he's gonna this is not gonna end well for him and then you're you're going through all of this and then all of a sudden the story takes another turn but you have this sense of the beginning and you know there's gonna come an ending and so we find ourselves living in the middle as pastors as pastors our Assignment is to walk you through and navigate life in the middle. When loved ones get sick, when loved ones die, we, we know that there's a glorious ending, but we have to figure out how to live in the middle. We know that Jesus is in the middle. He said we're two or three are gathered in my name, I will be in the middle. Woo, I just felt something drop heavy in the room just then. In the middle. In the middle is not a scary place. It's uncertain. Okay, it's 12. I have to stop. So I, I'm just... It's generally agreed, I used the word eschatology a few minutes ago, it's generally agreed that revelation has to do with eschatology. The study of last things. What is frequently missed is that all the eschatology is put to immediate use. This eschatology that John writes about is the most pastoral of all the theological perspectives, showing how the ending Showing us the ending impinges on the present. Knowing there's an ending affects how we deal with our present. If we have, if hope is lost, if hope is gone, then we're just going to give up, hang ourselves somewhere. But we know there's an ending, so the pastor uses information about this incredible ending that gives us hope to continue to live, to know that there is better that there is goodness still in our path. Revelation is thick with meaning. This book is thick. There are layers and layers and layers of truth to be mined. There's a multiplicity of significance in nearly every image that John sees. 
no one person, no single generation can expect to take possession of more than just a part of its complete truth. And a good place to begin is to understand that John himself was discerning the circumstances in his life and how he expresses things in the book of Revelation. His subject is God. His contact, context is pastoral. Not, he wasn't being an alarmist. When we accept John as the theologian, poet, and pastor, we can be wrong about the specific details and still be correct in how we respond to them. I, I, listen. My whole life, just my life, I've heard so many different interpretations of what the end is going to be. Are we going to be raptured before the seven years tribulation? Are we going to be taken in the middle? Are we going to be post? Or is it just all going to pan out? That's what people said. That's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pre-trib, post-trib, or pan-trib. What, what does that mean? It's just all going to pan out. And the truth is, it's like as smart as we think we are, none of us know the full answer. The whole concept is to awaken, cause us to see, cause us to hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hear what? It doesn't matter. Just hear. Because if you hear, you'll see. Only after John saw the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1 and 2 did he write Revelation 1 and 3. Even then, it was not left in written form for long, but quickly returned to the sensory world. Blessed is the man who reads aloud the words. Tanner read this or quoted it at the beginning of the service. Blessed is the one who reads aloud. Everybody say aloud. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. And blessed are those who hear. Do you understand the blessing that is present in the room? Simply because we are diving into this wonderful book. The revelation begins in the experience of seeing and hearing. Revelation makes explicit what is true of all scripture. It originates as God's word, spoken and heard, presented and seen. The Christian believes that God speaks and that as a result of his speaking, things come into being. Nature and supernature, the stuff of creation, the relationships of covenant, and eventually scripture. It was said, it was spoken before it was ever written. 
He spoke and it came to be, Psalm 33, verse 9. God has the first word. He has the last word. And all the words in between are spoken in a vocabulary and in a grammar that are gifts that he's given to us. Jesus Christ is designated in John's gospel as the word made flesh. Not in the book of Revelation, but in the book of John, he's described as word made flesh. The gospel narrative insists and demonstrates that word in the first place is neither a philosophical abstraction or is it ink on parchment, but a historical occurrence, the word. John's letter also emphasizes the physical, sensory, and historical word of God. He said, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word. That's First John 1 and 1. The word of God was spoken before it was written. Jesus was seen and touched and heard before he was written about. It is this spokenness, the living, dynamic creativity that characterizes the word of God above everything else. It's this, you've heard us talk about nothing happens without making declarations. Angels give heed to the voice of his word. Heaven is poised waiting for us to open our mouth and declare the promises of God in our life. As God's word written, the scriptures are a great but mixed blessing. I want, to get, I want to get through this little piece here. They're a blessing because each new generation of Christians has access to the fact that God speaks. The way he speaks, how he speaks, who he speaks to. We understand by reading that God speaks and the result of his speaking. The scriptures are a mixed blessing because the moment the words are written, they're in danger of losing the living resonance, the sound of the spoken word and reduced to something that is looked at, studied, interpreted, but not physically heard. From the moment that a word is written, it is separated from the voice that speaks it. I'll say that again. From the moment that a word is written, it is separated from the voice that speaks it. And it's therefore depersonalized. Yet the very essence of word is personal. It is the means by which what is within one person is spoken to another person and draws them into relationship. Words connect spirits. Words form relationships. Reduced to writing and just left there, words no longer do what they were designed to do, to create and maintain personal relationships. When, it was, when a word is spoken and heard, it joins the speaker and the hearer into a whole, W-H-O-L-E, relationship. When a word is written and read, it is separated into grammatical fragments and has to be reconstructed by the imagination to have its 
true intended effect. Are y'all with me? Are we still together? The importance of the words, the poet, the heart of the pastor, the intellect of a theologian. It is possible for the reader to function apart from the senses in a way that it is not possible for the hearer and the beholder. The senses can atrophy. And the written word becomes abstract. Doesn't have life, doesn't have power. It's just words that we speed read through. Words separated from the person who speaks them can be, a, can be beautiful, just like seashells are beautiful. You can look at them. They can be interesting and studied, but apart from the act of listening and responding to these words, they cannot function. The intent of revelation is not to inform us about God, but it's to involve us with God. We must be on guard. Hear me now. Hear, hear this. We must be on guard so that the printer's ink doesn't become embalming fluid. If we're going to get through this book, and understand that it's not meant to scare us, but to draw us into relationship. We have to understand this. The last word on scripture is therefore primarily a work of the imagination. The act of mind and emotion by which letters on paper are converted to voices and visions that pull us into a personal encounter. Anything can make you look. Only art makes us see. The revelation makes us see. I turned to see the voice. I heard a voice and I turned to see the voice. Uh, Okay, now let's read chapter one, and then I'm going to be done. I want you to remember the pastor in this passage. I want you to remember the theologian. I want you to remember that this is work of art, a, 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 a poem. Some of it's meant to be sung. It's, it's described as song as we get through this. I just want to read it now in uh, chapter one in the NIV. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. 
John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. I'm not done. I just need a drink. Look, he is coming with the cloud. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Ride on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Seven letters to the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And the only one that I know that I got right is Philadelphia. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands were someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Right therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I can't begin to tell you that I understand fully all the layers just in this first chapter. But I can tell you, I know what it's like. I can identify when John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I can just take you back one hour ago when we were in 
the Spirit on the Lord's day. It's like we could actually behold him, see him as we were worshiping, see the fire in his eyes, see the bronze feet. We could see the Holy One as we worshiped, if you were really looking. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, there is a warning in the last chapter that says, don't take anything away from what is written and don't add anything to. So as we began to write songs this last month, it, we, we were walking softly. I actually remember sitting in our little office uh, talking to my friend Mitch Wong, and I, I could actually feel the presence of the blessing that comes when you read the words out loud. Almost as real as intangible as this pulpit. I could sense, I, I feel the weight. If I've ever felt the weight for anything in my life is that there is purpose in our journey into this book. There are things that we won't be able to fully explain and we're not even going to try to pretend that we know all there is because every generation discovers more and more there's always more to discover about the entire work of the bible layers and layers and layers every year i read through again and again and and it's like every day as i'm reading there's a scripture that comes alive because it so fits the circumstance that i'm facing that day that I didn't get, I didn't have that circumstance last year, so it didn't capture me like it captured me this week. So I just want to read this passage of scripture. Um, this, this passage. I'm sorry, I'm about to call my song a passage of scripture. I think that would be blasphemy, but um, uh, this song is called Patmos. On New Year's Eve service, I talked about this Patmos experience, this place of severe pain, but somehow John was able to have an encounter in this cave of chaos. Instead, it became a cave of encounter. Instead of an ugly prison, it became a place of beauty. So it wrote this lyric, beaten and bruised, Boiled and bruised. Somehow I keep on breathing. Slave to the truth. Exiled, accused. The wages of my believing. But I don't have to be afraid. Because I. Know who's with me in this cave. Even in my darkest hour, I know there's a fresh encounter. Find me on my knees. My heart still believes. I can recognize your presence. Drawing me to highest heaven. Find me on my knees, let my spirit see.
There's beauty on the island of Patmos. You meet me on the island of Patmos. And so the prison just disappears and the glory appears. The heavens shine and I'm invited to come higher. I'm already in the spirit, but then I see a door open in the heavens and a voice says, come up higher. There's more. There's always more. Always more. The letters to the seven churches. We, 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 we sense the judgment when he says, I have this against you, but in every declaration to every church he gives them an invitation to return to come back to me i have this against you you your your love has grown cold you've lost your first love uh but but keep the faith hold on you've got the key of david that'll open up the door that you need to get through in every letter to the church there's this invitation to come or or to i stand at the door i won't force myself on you let me in my people will you let me in will you let me in and i'll stop with this i didn't know i was going to go this long jesus i have to stop with this i was in the spirit if you remember i told you that at the beginning of the covid craziness the lord gave me this word and in in starting in even in july when we had dwell revival uh, upper room worship was here on thursday night and i got up and i was already carrying some of this revelation and i got up and i started singing at the end i was coming to take it and take the offering but they were finishing worship and i just started singing i was in the spirit on the lord's day caught up in the fire as your eyes blazed I see you, I see you, draped across your chest, a sash of glory, your head, your hair, the purest white are glowing, I see you, so beautiful, the one who was and is, the one who's coming. So powerful, the one who is the end and the beginning. Behold, he's coming on the clouds. Behold, he's coming here and now. And the only word, the only word that I can speak is holy. I might not be a theologian. Didn't go to Bible school. But I was a student of the Bible. My whole life memorizing. In the beginning, I had to memorize or get a whipping. You remember that story? But then I became addicted to his word. I became, I had to have more. And I discovered more every time I read it again. And, it, and 
And then I figured out, I am a poet. Rhymes just come. When I don't even try, rhymes just come. It's, it's this beautiful connection to, from the visible to the invisible. It causes, again, I so identify with some of the things I was sharing with you. It causes people to see. It takes them into an experience. It's not just hearing words and singing memorized melodies. It is, it's experiential. And then I never planned to be a pastor, but I was always a pastor. I've always loved people. And so I commit to you to help you in the middle. I commit to you to serve you in the middle, to wash your feet, to marry you and bury you and dedicate your children and to love you in the middle and encourage you of a glorious end that's coming. The hope that we have. The end. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.